Refuge Radio is a podcast about the National Wildlife Refuge Association and the nation's National Wildlife Refuge System, a system spanning more than 850 million acres of land and water as part of a growing network of 568 refuges, at least one in every state. Now let's join the show. Refuge Radio. My name is Angie Horn. I'm the SoCal Regional Refuge Partnership Specialist with the National Wildlife Refuge Association. The following conversation is with Julia Gonzalez with the San Diego National Wildlife Refuge Complex. In this conversation, Julia and I talk about Latino Conservation Week, outdoor recreation, and reaching new audiences. Thank you for listening, as always, and enjoy our conversation with Julia Gonzalez. My name is Julie Gonzalez, and I am a park ranger at the San Diego National Wildlife Refuge Complex in in San Diego. And my role specifically is working with the community and partners to support their work in bringing communities and connecting them to the refuges and other places, uh, natural spaces um, in the community. And before this, I was uh, working with the National Park Service um, in various different uh, national parks, including Mount Rainier National Park in Washington, Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, Glacier National Park in Montana, and uh, Sequoia and Kings Canyon. So a lot of places, different places, and I've um, gained and learned so much uh, from each of them. One thing that I am trying to do more of and be better at is uh, telling my story and representing uh, the Latino and Latina communities specifically. You you sound like you've spent your entire career in public lands (laughs) so far, uh, going from park service to the refuge system. So um, we know you're going to be talking about your your challenges, um, you know, within the Fish and Wildlife Service or within the conservation sort of careers. So I want to talk about more personal stuff. So sort of what what drove you to get into this type of work? So um, I wanted to ask, what's your first memory of spending time in nature just personally? Do you have one or um, is it just something that was always part of your life? Yeah, I I feel like there there isn't one memory um, that really stands out, but more so a compilation of memories throughout my childhood. My um, My parents were were always really good at getting getting me outside. Um, my mom would always yell at me when I was at home watching TV and all the friends or all my friends in the neighborhood are out running around in their bikes and or playing hide and go seek. And she's like, you have to go outside. <laughs> you can't stay inside. Um, so it's always been, I think, a part of my, my childhood and upbringing. Um, going camping, going, my dad um, is a hunter, so he'd take me out, give me a slingshot, um, and uh, do things like that, wake up really early to, to go out and um, scout trails, and, um, and as, as a Latina, a lot of our gatherings are outside, because we're, um, we're often really big groups of people and um, the spaces that best accommodate us are outside. And so our, uh, most of my parties um, growing up, whether they were um, like baptisms or um, birthday parties, weddings, things were 
held outside and often in the in like city parks. Um, there'd be carne asada on the grills or tacos, um, or always hot dogs and burgers for the kids, and uh, and just like running around playing different games, um, escapes. So um, just kind of always been a part of of my life. <laughs> Uh, what kind of landscape did you grow up in? Are you native of California or where, where did you grow up? That's a great question. Um, so I, yeah, I was born in uh, in San Bernardino, California and uh, and have moved quite a bit throughout my life um, before I started working for <laughs> public land agencies. Um, I, from here, we went to Michigan. So we lived in the Detroit metropolitan area for um, about seven years. And um, I spent high school and college in Texas. So um, I've gotten to experience a different, a, a wide range of, of geography. Um, so no stranger to cold, snowy winters. Um, also, 100 degree dry heat desert uh, in El Paso, Texas, where, where my family lives. Uh, I was also born in San Bernardino County, <laughs> up in the high desert. So, uh, but I also went to Massachusetts and Southern Virginia, Nevada. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's funny whenever I see a Joshua tree, I'm like, I'm home. No yeah. matter where, you know, no matter where else I, you know, it's like that is the the sort of natural feature that I most associate with home. So you said you have, you know, family and cultural connection to, to spending time outside just by default, right? So um, your dad was a hunter. Um, did you ever get into hunting? Or is this just not, um, you know, you had your slingshot, but but how do you feel about hunting as a recreational activity? Yeah, I um, I've personally have not gotten into hunting as an adult, um, but I... I, I really enjoy what comes out of hunting. So I, <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a big foodie. I love eating and trying new, new things. Um, and my, um, my partner actually, um, is into hunting as well. And, um, uh, when I was living in Wyoming, uh, he, he shot a couple of elk and we've, we've been eating elk ever since, <laughs> um, out of the freezer. Um, so I do, I do appreciate hunting, um, not just as a sport, but as a means to um, to feed and um, supplement um, as well. And so, I think there there is a benefit and um, part of kind of that ecological um, equilibrium, dynamic equilibrium, um, that role that we play as um, as being at the top of the food chain really interested because you were in the park service and you've come over to refuges. So um, going from the park service to the refuge system, I know you haven't been here that long, but what are some of the differences that sort of jumped out at you? And what's been the most pleasant surprise uh, going from parks to the refuge system? Yeah, um, I, I haven't been here for that long. Um, so it is, I, I'm slowly starting to discover um, and find these things that are um, uniquely Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and I think for me on a, on a personal and professional level of things that I've discovered is that my, my experience with the Park Service was very um, kind of 
divided, like very specific. If you were an interpretation ranger, like you were doing interpretation and you were um, biologist, techn biology technician, and that, that's what you were doing. Um, and uh, here at the San Diego National Wildlife Complex, um, what I'm gathering is that it's, it's like all hands on deck, uh, which I think is really awesome because it, it connects those lines of like what I do as a community engagement person or education person um, directly impacts the, the work that the biologists are doing in, at the refuges and vice versa, like what they're doing is gonna impact me and, like, and being able to help them out with those. Like last week we um, went out to help ban some, uh, they were skimmer uh, chicks and we were banding those birds. And that was the first time I'd ever done something like that on this part of my job. And I learned so much from the, the scientists who were out there. And, and so being able to um, not feel like I'm compartmentalizing my role, but being able to support everyone has been um, really cool. And I'm really excited to see what other random um, projects I can be a part of that I wouldn't have imagined um, getting getting interested in. So it's a more holistic experience where you can yeah. see all the, all the different things coming together. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that sort of approach would improve management of public lands overall? Um, how do you think maybe like local parks can take those holistic lessons and apply them locally? Um, and do you think that would increase visitorship from these underserved communities that we're looking at? Yes. Yeah. The, the short answer is yes. I think um, oftentimes people, it's easy, right, to work in a bubble and um, be like, what, what I do is really important and here's why and I can tell you and I know why. Um, but it, it's harder to share that with other people um, who also, their, their bubble is very important and it's, it's the the thing that matters the most. Um, so being able to um, to share and and essentially have that interdivisional um, collaboration on different projects is so powerful because you get to hear why why this person thinks their work is important, um, but also find ways to connect it to the work that you think is important. And it, it broadens people's perspectives um, and it opens up that conversation uh, and allows for some compromise in that as well. And, and I think that reflects, um, can be reflected in our visitorship as well um, because we're having that dialogue between the people who work directly with the community um, and the people who are, are directly protecting the resources and um, habitats and wildlife. And so that, that has, uh, I think that has really great benefits to, to the community as well. What are you looking forward to doing in your role as a park ranger? Like, do you have any ideas about tactics uh, maybe that haven't been tried to reach new communities? Are there, there are things that you're bringing in that you're excited to try out in terms of engaging people around refuges? Yeah, there have been a, a couple of things that have come to mind as far as um, as different 
tactics or, or approaches to, to engage with the community given my, um, my past experience and what is happening right now on the refuge. Because um, there's, so, there's so much happening. There's a lot of really awesome partners that are already involved. For, for me, I, something I would like to see um, or envision is having some sort of long-term relationship with a, a particular group of youth, um, whether we're connecting with them starting in middle school and then meeting with them every year until they graduate high school and then um, kind of create this pathway program to be able to um, do internships or even get them hired on as, as um, employees. I think there, there is value in those um, one-off educational field trips where it establishes a, a foundation and knowledge of the resource of, of these places. But where we need more of is that more um, holistic approach where we're developing, I'm kind of moving my hands up here because it's like moving up a pyramid of um, going from that, that knowledge, establishing the, the base, um, but then moving into the skills. Like how, how can you be a, a biologist, take the skills that you're learning in school and apply them um, how can you be a leader in your community based on what you've learned here on on the refuge or um, in in your community your outdoor community um, through those skills and there's some there's some partners um, like outdoor outreach that are doing some awesome work with that already where they're um, they're using the outdoor skills that they they teach them to also talk about leadership and communication and build those soft skills because um, I think that's more of where where change happens is that we're we're creating leaders through these experiences and whether those leaders go um, to be a part of the the refuge system or whether they go off to be financial executives, um, it's still it's it's important to instill that throughout our programming and so um, something I, I would like to see is collaborating with a, um, a partner in, in the community that could help us see that kind of long-term commitment with the same group of individuals um, to eventually create those, those leaders within the community. I think, yeah, I think one of the barriers to what you were proposing is just people tend to, um, you know, you get people at one station and then they're off to another one in three years and then there's not a lot of continuity and follow-up. So, um, how would you actually address that question? Um, how would yeah. how would you mitigate that? Let's let's switch to that. How would you how would you solve that issue? Yeah, that I, I mean I think that's an excellent point. Is that they the 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 nature of the Fish and Wildlife Service um, is that in order to to promote or move up in positions, you have to move around to to different refuges. Um, to, to gain that experience, but also because there aren't a lot of um, higher up positions in one place. And so um, I think one way to keep that continuity is to 
to work with partners, like not just depend on the Fish and Wildlife Service person um, to be that leader um, in that programming, but to, to work with uh, partner organizations who are in the community, made out of the community, um, so that even if that individual were to, to leave, um, that work continues on and it stays as part of the community, um, even if it's not directly tied to, to the Fish and Wildlife Service um, or a particular refuge. Because, um, yeah, my, my goal is to, to create leaders and people who are um, who see themselves in outdoor spaces. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to, to end up in these jobs or in these roles, but that they can positively influence the, the refuges from wherever they, they end up. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's, I think that, that would be a way that I would address that. And, and I think an, another part that, um, is already in conversation is um, having those positions where you can promote from within uh, without having to, to move to get that promotion or that experience. Um, and so uh, my, like my position, for example, is one of those positions as well. So I would be, after a certain amount of time, I would be promoted uh, without having to move. So that there is a lot of thought um, being put into that particular issue already. Well, that's awesome to hear. Um, you know, keeping people in their own backyard sometimes is just very, very beneficial to maintain that community connection for sure. Um, and that way, a kid that you first meet in third grade, you maybe can see them graduate from junior high <laughs> and see them go on. That's really cool. Yeah, it's such a cool, cool feeling to be like, oh yeah, like they, they were so little. Now they're... <laughs> Now they're leading hikes or they're leading their own outing groups and they're showing their parents how to do these things. Um, yeah. yeah, that's like a really neat, tangible way. Very cool. Um, so we're going we're gonna to end with some fun questions. At least I find them fun. Um, so we want to, you know, we want to keep it fun and light. But, um, you know, you did mention that, you know, people want to see themselves outside and we want to create those leaders. So, um what recreational activities do you see gaining popularity on public lands in general? I know we talked a little bit about hunting, and there's a difference between priorities and what we see happening. Um, I've seen an uptick in interest in archery, and that's not just because I'm, in, I'm interested in it, but there, it's a very popular activity as we've introduced it. Um, but there's also other sports, um, you know, rock climbing, things like that. So from your perspective, first working um, in, in parks and now moving to refuges, what have you seen um, maybe the greatest amount of, of uh, popularity being gained on public lands and recreation? It doesn't have to be one thing, but just things that you've noticed, like, you know, um, people walking on slack lines was not a thing when I was a kid, but then all of a sudden it was like everywhere in national parks. So what do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, um, the slack lines really resonate with me because I'm like, oh. Oh my gosh. I have a story about slack lines, actually. It's really funny. Actually, yeah, yeah. Tell us about it, Eden. So this is the producer cutting in with her story about slack lining. I remember I was, I had like my little senior week for when I was graduating high school and um, we would always go to the uh, like Delaware and Maryland beaches. And whenever we went, um, there was the Mountain Dew, like extreme sports or whatever was there on a tour. 
and they had like BMXers and they had skateboarders, like everything you could think of extreme sport wise. And I remember there was, it was right whenever like slacklining really took off and there were some people slacklining and they were like professional slackliners. And I just remember it was like the craziest thing. And this one guy we had met, he went on tour with Madonna to slackline on her tour. So little segue about slack lines there. <laughs> but um, it was so a very I, I, interesting experience. <laughs> we've never before connected an outdoor recreational activity to Madonna, which <laughs> yes. is, that is a first, I think, in the Fish and Wildlife Service, definitely for Refuge Radio Podcast. So thank you for that, Eden. I actually do remember slackliners being part of Madonna's, I believe, Super Bowl halftime show, or it was some kind of big spectacle. So I have some vague memory of that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody can correct us. If I can find the video, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> so Julie, back to you. So so slacklining, obviously that's a little bit of a maybe a trigger <laughs> trigger for you. Uh so so um yeah, talk about your experience and your observations on recreational activities and what's gaining popularity and, and what's the potential out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, there are a lot of, like you mentioned, like slacklining, um, things like that, that you wouldn't normally think about doing or, or seeing um, or even know it was a thing um, that I've, I've seen throughout my time. Um, one thing that I, I think we're going to see more of is, is a tie um, between getting outdoors and using technology to, to do that. Um, so in the past, um, I know Pokemon Go was really big and people were going out and trying to find Pokemons on um, the, the different national parks or refuges or just public spaces. And um, there, there were a lot of people just who had never been to those places. And the only reason they were there was because they had to catch them all. And, and you see things like geocaching and um, that are, are getting people outside that normally wouldn't and um, things like Instagram meetups where uh, rangers are leading uh, hikes with the idea of like we're here to get a picture we're going to teach you we're going to give you some tips on what's the what's the best lighting or the angle um, for this particular landscape and um, so I think we'll we will be seeing more of that throughout uh, as technology becomes more and more integrated into um into society and um for me personally uh, a sport that i've started to see more and more of or hear more of um is mountain biking Um, and it might be because i just recently started to get interested in in what it what it entails um but I've th- this conversation of like our refuges or our parks, places where folks can can mountain bike and um, share the trail with other people, and because um, it, I think it's gaining more and more traction uh, within the outdoor community too. Is that the mountain biking? And- uh, you mentioned Pokemon Go, and I'm gonna say my experience with Pokemon Go. I was with my mom in Pittsburgh and downtown Pittsburgh and we were walking down toward the, the confluence area in the park there. And uh, she said, what is this Pokemon Go thing that I've been hearing about? And I say, you see that grown man with his ignoring his dog and he's on his phone and he just wa- almost walked in the middle of the street. 
he's doing Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go. <laughs> the only thing can explain his behavior is almost walking into the middle of a busy street because he was trying to get something. And it was um, it was interesting when we went to the park. It was it was crazy. It was it was just full of families and people like being led by these little this army of little kids with like the phones in front of them, and it was just really adorable. So that was my personal experience with Pokemon Go, um, and I had a professional one. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it makes me think about what is possible for creating apps like Pokemon Go. I mean, it's it's one thing to have an established intellectual property that everyone can get into. Um, you know, can you do a nature one that takes advantage of something that's already in popular culture that would actually push people out rather than creating something? Um, you know, I would say that something like Disney, the Disney Corporation partnering with major public lands organizations to create... Um, an interactive outdoor nature focused um, game for kids using their intellectual property would be a huge uh, boon to getting people outside. Um, so maybe it's that finding the right partnership with the right intellectual property, getting people outside. Right. There, I think there is so much potential there in, in harnessing. There's a lot of conversation about the the benefits, um, but also the the issues that come with uh, with social media and technology and how it, it it's impacting. Well, if you mentioned the park in Victorville, how it doesn't normally get a lot of traffic, and then all of a sudden they have um, hundreds of people coming in because of this one particular phenomenon. Um, but but I think it it can be a tool that. Um, that public lands can use and can steer people in a in a certain direction like you said like provide this educational content um using uh using those other partners to to use that technology and um bank on the people who who are now more used to navigating uh the world with the help of their technology yeah i think regardless of maybe what prior generations think about using new tech. It's like, this is always a generational issue. There's always some kind of new technology that comes along that people are like, no, it's damaging. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, but I, I do think leaning into the whole augmented reality thing is the way to go rather than try to reject it or say it's bad for people. Cause you know, as we've discussed, you know, just giving people that first entrance to nature, regardless of how it happens is usually very beneficial for how they think of nature for the rest of their lives. So mm-hmm. I think it's a net good, you know? Um, and it also could be used as a stepping stone for getting into things like iNaturalist and, and using other apps of, of that kind. It could be a stepladder of engagement on, on mobile. So the first time I talked about this issue was uh, Michelle Obama, um, the first lady, convened a panel on uh, mobile gaming uh, back in 2010 or something like that. And she brought together like interior agencies and, and, and um, outdoor nonprofits along with Google and Nike and other organizations to talk about this issue. And um, so the conversation's been going on for a very long time. <laughs> but it kind of waxes and wanes depending on who's in, who's in charge, I think. Um, I think it would be interesting to actually reconvene that entire panel and see what would happen in 2020, but, um, you know, I'm not going to be the first lady anytime soon, so I won't have control over that. I won't be able to summon people from Silicon Valley and every agency. I'll I'll never have that power, but maybe someone can do it in the future. Uh, Julie, when you're the director of Fish and Wildlife Service, that's what I need you to do. In in 10 to 15 years, I need you to get all those tech companies back together and we'll figure this out. So... (laughs) (laughs) 
so we're going to wrap this up with, um, I always want to ask people, um, you know, what is your favorite place to go in nature? Not the best place, not, you know, the most beautiful place, but what's the place that you just love going? And it could be a national park or part of it, or just your backyard or your balcony. What's, what's your happy place out in nature? What do you like to do? Where do you like to go? Uh, for me, there, there isn't like one specific place. Um, I think it's more of a, a state of mind for me. And I, um, as a, the years have gone by, one way that I love to recreate and get outside is to hike. And I, um, I've slowly gotten more comfortable with hiking by myself and doing um, solo hiking and going out into um, onto these trails and just finding a space where I can um, reflect on, on what's going on in my life, um, but also just being aware of my, my surroundings, where how I'm feeling at the moment, whether I'm struggling to get up um, the hill or um, whether I, I feel vulnerable and scared because I'm, I'm a woman of color outside on a trail um, by myself and just like embracing those feelings and um, recognizing where they come from and then kind of um, using that clear headspace to, um, to understand how my week is going to go, what my biggest issue is that week that I'm dealing with, um, or, or, or those challenges and, and just like, as it's a cliche, you know, like as you're going uphill, like those struggles come up and you're like, oh, like, this is really hard. This is, um, this is what I'm struggling with this week. And then being at the top and just in, taking in that view and being grateful and, um, and then as I make my way down and it's like, okay, like, let's collect these thoughts. Let's make them into a, um, something that's useful. And, and then by the time I get back to my car, it's just like a re release of that stress and I feel better and, um, more, more ready to take on the world. And so, um, just like being, uh, I like that feeling of being challenged by a hike and um, being able to take away that clear mind um, at the end of it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Is there a question that you wish someone would ask you about this kind of work that no one has before? What would you like to get across to the audience or, or you know, something about yourself or a concept that you'd like to get across that you just haven't been able to find the right channel to do it? So I've been struggling with the, this idea of, of recreating in nature um, and in the outdoors and kind of re redefining that as I have gone, gone through my career, but also my personal experiences as, uh, as an adult in um, outdoor spaces. And there's just there's this realization for me that I have, um, I've, I've assimilated to, to what is, is considered the right way to recreate, um, based on European or white centric definitions colonial. of, uh, <laughs> yeah, colonial, <laughs> uh, definitions yeah. of what it's, 
how you're supposed to experience a space um, or how you're supposed to recreate. And, um, and when I first started my, my career working for federal lands and um, I, I was like a young, enthusiastic, um, very naive <laughs> um, young student who just wanted to absorb and feel like they belonged and um, tried really hard to um, learn as much as possible. And, and what I learned from that, um, I'm now having to unlearn. So, so I am, I guess the reason I bring this up is I'm, I want to challenge people to take that moment to uh, or reflect what are some of the things that I have learned about recreating in these outdoor spaces um, or, or engaging with them that maybe I, I should be unlearning and, um, and viewing them from a different perspective uh, because I have realized that not everybody uh, needs to hike 20 miles into the backcountry to appreciate the um, the landscape, and um, and that there are there are ways of experiencing the outdoors and recreating that have often been erased or overlooked, um, including the the way that Native Americans and Indigenous people have interacted with these landscapes, and so. Um, I challenge people to think about where they where they learned these things, who they learned them from, um, and if there are other perspectives they should be learning as well. That's actually a wonderful answer that fits right into the theme of the podcast. So I deeply appreciate it. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons we have these conversations is is for that answer. I mean, it's just I don't know if you saw the movie Wild. Um, or read the book. I've not um, heard a lot about yeah. it. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, you know, one of the things about the movie, at least, that I enjoyed was the slow peeling away of layers of what it means to be outdoors. Like, she had this really goal-oriented thing happening, and she packed herself, you know, up with REI equipment and, you know, did hiking the right way. And then slowly those layers get peeled away when you realize when you're in nature, it really comes down to just you and your surroundings. It doesn't really matter what you're wearing. You can't hike the right way. <laughs> um, and I think, like you said, there's this weird competitive element too, um, at least around mountain climbing and how, you know, these extreme hikers and, you know, ultra marathoners and things like that. I think people kind of forget that there are other ways to be in nature. Um, and I also wanted to bring up a, something a friend said, a, a white friend, um, who said they didn't like the beach because beaches are not productive landscapes. And I just thought that that is such a colonial mind, mindset. Like, um, beaches are very productive. What? Yeah, I, I know what they meant. It's just like you can't farm them or anything like that. Or, you know, their beaches are economically attractive because they're a nice, um, nice thing for people to look at. But I'm like, no, beaches are, you know, they're part of our history. Coasts are very important to indigenous cultures and beaches have always been, you know, I mean, that's where people land on new lands. You know, that's where people fish. That's where people sort of start to, to build roots in, in a place. And that goes down to indigenous stuff. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to bring that up because uh, we could do a whole episode on, on colonial thinking and decolonization, <laughs> but we're going to try to keep this one light. But I do appreciate your, your answer. 
Right. Yeah. And I, like you said, like it is, it's this competitive mindset of like, you have to be better or faster or um, like in order to do it right, this is how you do it. And um, I catch myself in that mindset all the time. Like I have to be like, Julie, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. <laughs> um, like you don't have to walk this many miles to like appreciate being outside. And it's also, it's not sustainable and not everybody can do it. And um, especially when trying to connect communities to these spaces it's like yeah it just erases their own connections because I didn't grow up doing these things but I still have a very fond connection with the outdoors going to beaches (laughs) um going to my local park and go you know camping um eating outside going to ranches sitting in the back of a pickup truck um is you like ride down a rust or a dusty road. Um, those are all valid ways and, and we're not talking about that enough. So I'm really excited to share that this week um, is part of Latino Conservation Week, uh, an, an initiative hosted by the Hispanic Access Foundation. We here at the San Diego National Wildlife Refuge Complex are putting on a couple of events, um, including a um, a conversation between myself and another park ranger, Nancy Fernandez, um, about our experiences as Latinas in this field and what some of our um, challenges and um, things that we've overcome throughout our journey in this field have been. Um, the other event is we're hosting a, a virtual bike tour where we're inviting folks to come out to the Tijuana Slough National Wildlife Refuge in Imperial Beach and uh, and explore on their own, um, kind of it building off of this uh, this need for interactions to be done virtually now that um, a lot of a lot of group gatherings are being restricted due to COVID. So we're really excited about those two events, and um, we'll be participating in. Um, promoting other events throughout the week that are happening across the nation. And I will be participating in a panel with uh, that is hosted by Latino Outdoors San Diego, and they're hosting a film called uh, Land, Water, y Comunidad. And, and the panel will be after the film. It's a short film, 10 minutes, um, and we'll open it up to questions talking specifically about um, the the community's connection to their outdoor spaces that are um, within reach. Thank you for listening to this episode of Refuge Radio, the podcast of the National Wildlife Refuge Association. You can find Refuge Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to check out some of our awesome shows from refuges all across the country. If you have a comment about this episode, or an idea for a future podcast, drop us a line at refugeradio at refugeassociation.org. And to learn more about our work, go to refugeassociation.org and consider donating. Until next time, we'll see you on a refuge. Mm-hmm.